Any other questions? You got a camera? Joel, right there. And I think that's it. We are in Luke chapter 4 today as we continue our way making, going through the gospel of Luke. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 have some uh, very important parallels. So in chapter 3 last week, we looked at uh, John the Baptist and uh, really how important his role in ministry was. It's really easy for us to just kind of go right on past John the Baptist and, and just like he's the opening act for Jesus or something, but that the Lord had prophesied about him in his word and that his ministry was very different. His ministry was one uh, similar to Elijah, that he was going to be somebody to be the wake-up call for the nation of Israel, to prepare them for the, the coming Messiah and, and part of that was simply getting them to understand that they needed a Savior at all, right? I mean, if, if people don't understand that they need to be saved from their sin, then what do they need to be saved from? What's the point of needing a Savior? What's the point of, it is, then it just becomes going to church and being a part of a group, right? But John's ministry was to let people know that they were sinners in need of a Savior. That's what the baptism of John was all about. It was a public proclamation to say we are just as lost as the Gentiles, that baptism existed before that, but it was baptizing Gentiles into Judaism, and now the same thing is being used to just let everyone know that they are sinners. Now, the parallel between chapters 4 and 3, or actually comes into the end of chapter 3, when Jesus goes to be baptized, and you know, the question is, why did Jesus go and be baptized anyhow? He tells John in the other Gospels, we read that it's to fulfill all righteousness. But he wasn't a sinner, so he didn't need to make that confession. He wasn't laying his old life down and taking a new life up, which is our baptism that we have in Jesus Christ. The reason the baptism was important is because it identified him with us. It counted him among sinners, just as being crucified among the criminals, did as well. That he was putting himself right there to be numbered among us. To face the things that we face. And that's what we see in chapter 4. As he is going to go into this time of fasting, and then afterwards the temptation of the enemy comes against him. Again, it's important we understand, I'm going to mention this several times as we go through the Bible study today, this is not for Jesus. Jesus doesn't face them this temptation to prepare him for ministry. He doesn't face the temptation so that God can see what Jesus can handle. He faces this temptation to be connected to us, to relate to us, and that we might be related, able to relate to him. It's for our benefit and our benefit alone. So let's pray, and we will get into chapter 4. God, again, we are so grateful that we can gather in your name, that we can study your word together, and we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us today, that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts, that it would bear good fruit, that we would be changed, and, and Jesus, that we'd get to know you more. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we've gathered. We want to know you better, and we want our lives to to be a reflection of your love. So we give ourselves to you. We give this time to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterwards, they had, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. As much as we all love the mountaintop experiences, and everybody does, right? I mean, we love those times that man, we just kind of come into this new relationship or deeper relationship with the Lord. And maybe that's a section of scripture we read or a Bible study we heard, or maybe it's just a next level of maturity in our walk. Those times in our lives where we're just like, Lord, this is so good. I want to be here forever. <laughs> I don't want this to end. I want to know you more. I want to walk in this kind of life every single day. And as much as we want that, in this life, that's just not how it works. That we are, by design, to go from the mountaintops to the valleys. And that's just the undulation of the Christian life. There's, there's no way around it. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is that we think that if we leave the mountaintop, we've done something wrong. It, it was so good last week or last year. I had this incredible experience with the Lord. Why am I not still there? What's wrong with me? What have I done? And, and coming to the understanding that you, you haven't necessarily done anything wrong. That's just how this life is. And I believe that this picture of Jesus here is a great example of that. Again, not for Jesus himself, but his example to us of what life looks like. That he goes from the pinnacle, what we would consider, man, the mountaintop experience of the baptism, where God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And we go, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good experience. And he goes from that to the wilderness, to the valley. And it's important that we note and take a very careful note of verse 1 that says, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There's a couple things we need to know and we need to understand. And I think this is very good application for us. Again, I, there's a very different way it applies to Jesus than it does to us. But for us... There are things we need to understand about what's going on here. Um, first of all, we need to understand the Holy Spirit in no way is tempting Jesus. And I've had people say that. Well, you know, it was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness. Isn't the Holy Spirit the one tempting him then? Not at all. In fact, Scripture is very clear in James chapter 1. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He just doesn't. God doesn't put us in a place, doesn't cause some sort of temptation to be shoved in front of us. By his hand, he will never tempt anyone. And so in no way is Jesus being led, or is, is, is the Holy Spirit tempting Jesus. As I said earlier, 
he faces these things for us. And we see this throughout the Gospels. As we look at the life of Jesus, that he chooses to face the extreme parts of humanity in every way. Again, this is, is, is what makes him relatable to us. And, and I believe it's also to show us how much he loves us. That nothing he did was the easiest path. Nothing he did was the minimal amount, right? And we look at example after example that he does these things to experience life at a level that we never will, at the extremes we never enter into, to show us really the extreme amount of love he has for us. He was born in the lowest place. He was looked down upon all the, by all the religious leaders of his day and judged by them. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was accused and sentenced unjustly, and he died a shameful public death. The extremes of all things of humanity. And in the same way, here in chapter 4, he is tempted in the absolute extremes. And we need to understand that Jesus didn't face these, and it wasn't really a temptation for him, right? It's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, because here he is, we know he is 100% God. But he has chosen to put himself 100% under the limitations of mankind. And I believe that doesn't make things easier, it makes them harder. So it isn't like he's pretending to relate with this, or pretending to be tempted. It is the extreme temptation we will never understand completely. First, um, this point of weakness that he is at and the extreme, extreme parts of this temptation, um, again, it's, it's so he can be relatable to us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted as we were, yet without sin. Again, Jesus doesn't face these things to go, oh, well, can I take it? Or God isn't putting Jesus in this situation to go, well, let's see what he can handle. Jesus is going, I want every single person in all of humanity throughout all of time to know I have faced the things that they face. I understand what temptation feels like. And for us to know that he did all of that and never failed. Jesus went through the valleys for us. Now again, we go through the valleys for different reasons. He goes through the valleys for us to relate with us. We go through the valleys sometimes by our own mistakes. But that's not the only reason. And I think sometimes we make that mistake of going, well, obviously, it must be my fault, right? And then what follows that is, well, because it's my fault, I can't expect God to get me out of it. I mean, he, I got to learn my lesson, don't I? And so we like put all of this expectation and pressure on us of like, well, this is my mess. I guess I got to clean it up. That is not the God we serve. That is not why Jesus faced these things for us. He faced them to relate with us. And so if, even if it's our own mistakes, 
He relates with us in that temptation. He relates with us in those valleys. Beyond our own mistakes, we can find ourselves in the valley because we are under, the, under attack. Whether that's the attack of the fallen world we live in and, and just the evil of people, or it can be the attack of the enemy himself or demonic forces. Or it, be, it can be because the Holy Spirit has led us there. And honestly, it isn't as important of what gets us into those valleys as how we go through them. And, and I believe that this is the overall, is the application for us, is that how do we get through the valleys? Because we could spend a lot of time on making mistakes or the things that happen or the attack of the enemy. Honestly, I'm not all that concerned with what gets me there. I don't want to keep making the same mistake over and over again. But when I'm in the valley, I want to go through it well. And I believe we see exactly how that's done as, uh, as the Lord himself goes through the valley for us. I believe Scripture's clear that, again, no matter what gets us there, he's able to redeem the journey of the valleys. And, and there's something amazing that happens. As much as we love the mountaintop, I found for myself I don't grow on the mountaintop. It's great, and it has a place. It is, I believe it's a place of rest. It's a good thing for us to look back to and go, man, that was a great time with the Lord, and I, and I was refreshed in that time. But where I grow, where I mature, it's the valley. And I don't like to admit that. Because <laughs> I don't want to volunteer for more valleys, right? i just like, okay, I'd rather have more mountaintops. But Scripture also tells us, right? It's, it's in the valley of the shadow of death. That's where his rod and staff comfort us. Not on the mountaintop. It's in that low point where you're like, I have absolutely nothing. I have lost everything. I have made every mistake. I have done everything wrong. And the Lord is right there going, but I'm here with you. It's his rod and his staff comforting us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And I believe it's important that we remember there are reasons for the valleys. As much as we want to avoid them, we know we're going to be in them. There's a very wrong teaching out there that says if you have enough faith, you'll never go through a valley. You'll never have financial hardship. You'll never be sick. You'll never have, you'll never have a valley in your life if you're a person of faith. Absolutely wrong. Certainly not scriptural. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the place of of the valley, into the place of, of temptation, into the place of difficulty. And if he went there, we certainly will as well. Now again, he faced these things for us. That we might be able to understand his love for us, that we would be encouraged by how he goes through them, and that he faced them on our behalf. But we need to understand the intensity of what he's going through. So we're told he fasted for 40 days. And there are others that have fasted for that long. It's interesting to read some of the accounts, uh, both on the scientific level of like what their body goes through and actually the, the personal testimony of people that have done that long of a fast without food. Um, and in the first week or two, they go, that's hard. But then there's like this release that happens. 
and, and you're not hungry, you don't feel like sick or tired, you've actually got a fair amount of energy, and that lasts like up to about day 30, between day 30 and 40. But it's somewhere in there where suddenly this hunger strikes that is on the border of insanity, that it is the last steps of your body before it collapses, before it just breaks down. And that's where Jesus is at. That he's in this place of 40 days without food. Now Luke also tells us that it wasn't just at the end of those 40 days that the devil was tempting him. But he makes a point of saying he tempted him for 40 days. And so for this, this whole time, there's just been this chipping away. Just this constant annoying devil just poking him in the back of the head. Just whatever it is. Just for 40 days and then... At his weakest point, now comes the real strike. Now comes the absolute attack. Though he's been subtle, though he's been doing all these things, this is where he hits at the weakest point. And that is still how the enemy acts. You know, again, not to spend too much time on the devil, but we need to understand a little bit of how he does things, some of his tactics. We're not to be ignorant of the devices of the enemy. And so he will chip away, chip away, chip away, and he's waiting for that weakest moment for the full-on attack. Now, that might be something physical, fasting for 40 days, or maybe things don't go our way, or maybe you know we get fired or whatever it is. It can be that kind of weakness. But I'll tell you what, the other place that I have found that we don't think of being weakness is when we are the most confident. When we think we've got stuff handled. Things are going good, man. I got things good. Yeah, God, hey, I'm with you. No problems, but I can handle all this. And it's that confidence. There is an insane amount of weakness hidden right below it. And the enemy knows how to hit that at just the right moment. When you think you've got it figured out and handled, that's the, that's the weak moment that he has been waiting for. Now, the other part of this that I've found over the years, that if I have the wherewithal to actually think about it in the moment, is that when that onslaught begins, when you just feel that attack of the enemy just suddenly ramp up, it actually can be encouraging if you understand what's going on. Because something's changed. All of a sudden, the attack is just taken off it's heated up for some reason, and it's because he's running out of time. And when we understand that, we're like, oh, okay, then good things are ahead. Maybe I'm not at the end of the valley, but I can see it from here. Maybe not every trial is out of my way, but the most intense one must be right now, and if I can just get to the other side of it, if, if I just choose to press into the Lord, and, and what it's caused me to do um, is to just remember to keep my mouth shut a lot. That's a big part of it, right? It's like things that I think, oh, you know what? I'm going to say this. He's like, no. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> and if I just wait it out, Lord, it's me and you. I don't understand what's going on, but I feel just the hammers of the enemy coming down on me like never before or like I haven't felt in a long time. And I'm going to trust you to get me through this valley. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to try and make things happen. 
I'm going to rest and trust in you, right? And I found time and time and time again, when I do that, sure enough, and that time of temptation passes, and the Lord just has good things waiting for me on the other side. Again, it doesn't mean that every trial is come to an end, but the end of the valley is in sight, at least. Now, as the devil hits uh, Jesus with these temptations, it's actually three different categories. And First um, John chapter 2 breaks them down as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, that's really what Jesus is facing, but that's only the very surface of it. As we come to understand what's going on here, it's a whole lot more deeper. It's a whole lot deeper than that. It's easy to just kind of roll over this first one in verse 3 where it says, uh, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Go, well, that's pretty easy. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And so he's, he's hungry. I mean, he's... Maybe the devil's tempting him to give in to the, the weakness of the human flesh. or It's a whole lot more than that. That's, again, the surface. The lust of the flesh is how you can categorize that. And I think one of the mistakes we make is from how this is worded. So the way that it's been translated into English, it's if you are the Son of God. But in the original Greek, that's not how it's worded. It's since you are the Son of God. So he's not questioning Jesus. He's not saying, well, if you really think you're the Son of God, prove it. He's not questioning Jesus' ability or power or deity. In fact, in the original language, he confirms it, since you are the Son of God. So what is he doing? He's questioning the character of God the Father. Well, since you're God's Son, why wouldn't he allow you to use your godly power? Since you still have all the power of God Almighty, why not use it to just do something simple for your basic needs? That's all we're talking about. He's not saying turn these stones into gold. He's not saying turn them into gems. He's not saying turn them into slaves. It's the most basic of all things, just basic bread. Why would God not allow you to have the most basic of things? Doesn't he love you? That's the question. That's the temptation. And specifically for Jesus, it is to try and get him to use the power of God when he has chosen to place himself under the limitations of humanity. Because if he were to do that, if he were to use his power to serve himself, and that's a big, important point, because he will use his power to feed thousands. He will use his power to heal and to bring sight to the blind and lame to... or and the ability to walk to those who are lame and cleanse the lepers, he'll use his power, but not for himself. If he used it for himself, he would no longer be one of us. He would no longer be able to redeem us. The part of the law of a kinsman redeemer, and that's what Jesus fulfills, is that he must be a close relative. And for him to use his power is for him to be God and not one of us. So there's questioning the character of God the Father, and there is the temptation to get him to use his power for himself. And this is really the same type of temptation that he used in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. 
right? Oh, God's keeping something good from you. He's bringing God the Father's character into question. Why would he hold anything back? The truth is he knows that you're going to know the difference between good and evil, and he doesn't want that. He wants to keep you stupid, right? It's the same type of temptation that he is still using. And unfortunately, it still works. It'd be great if we went, oh, hey, that's an old thing. We're not falling for that anymore. Oh, yes, we do. We fall for it all the time. And there's no reason for him to change when the old uh, hits are still working as well. Again, Jesus has chosen to be under the limitations of mankind in order to be one of us, to redeem us. And so he chooses the same weapon that is available to us, right? Again, he could have fought this battle in a lot of different ways. Even just simply having the authority of who he is, he could have said, get out of here, <laughs> you know, depart. I don't want to hear a word out of your mouth. He could have shut the devil down simply by the authority of being God himself. But again, we couldn't relate with that. We can't do that. We don't have that part, that power outside of Jesus. And so he fights the battle the same way that is made available to us, which is the word of God. Verse 4 says, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He stands on the word of God. And I love even, I mean, the scripture he chose, of course, perfect. Not just talking about the goodness of the Father or the power of the Father or any of those things, but that the word of God itself is most important, it's more important than our own personal survival. It's more important than our own wants, needs. It's more important than anything that we would go through in life, any stress, any trauma, any hunger. The Word of God. And with it, God's timing. Because if Jesus answers this, he's not just going, no, all I need is the Word of God. He's really correcting the devil's questioning of God's character going, and I'll wait for my father for bread. I already have what I need, and I'll wait on God's timing for everything else. Now, verse 5 goes on. And we're only going to go about halfway through the chapter today. Verse 5 says, And then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I give you and their glory, for it has been given, excuse me, it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge to keep you, and their hands, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. 
And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. News of him went out through the surrounding regions, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus is shown the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. Um, it's not just, and again, this is a little clearer in the original language, it's not just that he saw all the kingdoms of that world, of the world at that time. The idea is he saw all the kingdoms of the world throughout all time in a moment. And the enemy tells him, I'll give all of this to you. I think the mistake people make is they're like, well, that's a lie. Obviously a lie. The devil doesn't have that authority. I mean, he can't, he can't do that, can he? Oh, yes, he can. <laughs> For this world doesn't belong to him, but he presently has authority over it. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. He says, all of this has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Jesus doesn't say, that's not true. Or that's, not, or that's a lie, because there is truth to it. Again, uh, I think we can look around and we go, well, why, why is it so many horrible people are in charge of this world? And whether you're talking politics or you're talking entertainment or music, or we're like, these are horrible people. Like You see them in an interview and you're like, that's just a horrible person. Who put this person in charge? <laughs> He has been given all authority. He gives it to whoever, whoever he wishes. And honestly, he doesn't care if they believe in him or not. He doesn't care if they give him credit. He doesn't care about any of that. As long as he can distract, and he, and he can use their place of authority to distract others. That's all he's about. He could care less what we think of him or if we believe. In fact, it's better for him if we don't believe in him at all. And I find it interesting how many people I've talked to over the years that will blame God for all of their misfortune and all of their misery, but don't believe the devil exists. He shows Jesus all of these kingdoms. And, and I believe when it says, and their glory, it's not beautiful buildings, it's not treasure, it's the people that are in them. See, this is what Jesus has come for. And the devil knows that. He knows he's not going to be impressed with gold. He knows he's not going to be impressed with the, the greatest parties. What Jesus has come for is the people. And that's where we really understand this temptation. Because the devil is not simply saying, hey, I'll give you a, a great signing bonus. I will make it worth your while if you jump onto my team. The devil is saying is, I know why you're here. You have come to redeem mankind, and I know what it's going to take to do it, but I'll give it to you for free. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to carry the weight of all of mankind's sin upon you. I'll give it to you. All you got to do is bow down. That's the temptation. And again, there is a, a direct link or questioning of the, the father's character why would he send you here to do this why would he let you as his son bear the punishment for the guilty when i can just give it to you right again questioning the father making himself look like the hero bringing the easiest way to do it 
And again, what does he say? Just bow down to me. This is what the devil's wanted since his rebellion in heaven, is to have God bow down to him. Oh, this was, this was I think, the, the thing that the devil had been leading toward, thinking about, planning for thousands of years, is to go, all you got to do is bow down. I think that'll work. I think I can make this happen. This is the crux right here. And Jesus, of course, does not fall for it. Verse 8, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Shuts him down. And again, I, I just love how with, with all of these, really, Jesus doesn't enter into a discussion. He doesn't enter into a debate with the devil about right and wrong or what scripture really means or any of those things. He just, just shuts him down. I'm not listening to you. This is what the Bible says. That's all I need to know. This is what the word of God says. And so the devil takes him from this place of isolation in the desert to the mountaintop. And now he takes him to Jerusalem. And while Jesus has continually said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now the devil says, it is written. The devil knows the Bible pretty well. He has been twisting it, manipulating it for thousands of years. Taking it out of context. And that's exactly what he does here. This is such a, I think, such a great demonstration of how the enemy does things. So he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which say, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In other words, the promise here that's given is to keep you in all your ways, in the lifestyle that you'll live, in the way that you'll be presented to mankind, and the, the really it's a matter of character and integrity that's being spoken of here. But the devil leaves that part out. And so he makes it look like it's about physical protection and turns it into a dare that the angels shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And he's saying, well, God loves you. They can prove it. Again, questioning God's character and trying to get Jesus to test his father's love by misquoting Scripture, taking it out of context. And this is, I know I hit this a lot, but one of the reasons that I love studying the Bible verse by verse is because it keeps it in context. And that even if I completely went off on a tangent, completely took a right-hand turn, the next scripture we come to will correct that. And you guys would go, wait a second, that's not what the Bible said last week, right? And so <laughs> by, by going in order, keeping it in context, again, you guys should never trust my word on anything. Study it for yourself. Read it for yourself. I encourage you, read commentaries, listen to other Bible studies, but always check them by the word. It will never contradict itself. And when something is just like a one-off, and that's what the enemy is doing here, he's trying to make this promise about Jesus' character into something about physical protection. And he's, he's like, look, here's a scripture that says you'll be physically protected no matter what. Well, that isn't found anywhere else in scripture. You won't find other things that back that up. 
And so it's just a, a one-off idea. And anytime I have here a Bible study, hear a teacher, and that's what they're coming off with, it's just like, oh, well, this one scripture has never been fully understood, but now I know it. Show me where else that is in scripture. Oh, well, this is the only spot. Then I'm not interested. Because to get that one thing, to say what you wanted to say, you're taking it out of context. You're making it say something that we don't find anywhere else. And I know we've talked about this before, but the importance of the, the four pillars of a scriptural truth or a biblical truth, right? And we find it in the Old Testament. Either it's clearly taught or it's taught as like a type or a shadow, right? And then we've got Jesus talking about it. Jesus taught specifically on it. Then we see it in the book of Acts, the early church living it out. And after that, we find it in the letters as instruction. So any biblical truth that has those four pillars, man, that is solid. You don't need to worry about whether or not that's true. You've got scriptural Old Testament and New Testament and Jesus' words backing that up. If you've got three of them, you've got a pretty good truth. If you've got two of them, I'd be careful. If you've got one, I'd throw it away. Right? That's kind of how that goes. So the enemy comes off with one. Again, trying to kind of get Jesus to buy into this kind of pride of life. Prove who you are. Prove God's love. And start your ministry with a bang. That in the temple, there would be all of these people. If Jesus had thrown himself off and not died, there would be these witnesses. And so the enemy is like, hey, I know you're about to start your ministry. This would be pretty impressive. This would be a great way to get it going. Again, pride of life. Questioning the Father's character and trying to get Jesus to fall into these uh, temptations. Again, he does not enter into a debate with him. He, he doesn't, well, well, you know, Satan in the original language, it was actually meant blah, 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 blah. You know, he doesn't get into this whole thing. of He doesn't do any of that, right? He just shuts him down. He counteracts Satan twisting the word of God with using it correctly and ends the discussion. Now, again, we look at all this and we're like, Okay, this is interesting. This is good stuff, but how does it apply? Again, I, I think we come back to that understanding. Jesus is led into this valley by the Holy Spirit. All of us will face valleys. Many of them will be, again, our mistakes, attack of the enemy, attack of the world, but we cannot forget it may also be led by the Holy Spirit. No matter what got us there, it is the Holy Spirit that will get us through. It is Jesus himself that, again, the temptation we face in the valleys that we go through is able to sit there right there with us and go, I remember what this feels like. And I think that's something that we need to come back to. It's something I, we know, we've heard, but understanding that, again, we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness. He understands. And for me, that is a huge thing I need to be reminded of because I can feel like Jesus is, man, yes, he loves me and I know that, but he's God and I'm not and he's got all power and I don't. And, and he 
you know, lived a perfect life, and I have not. And, and, I, and I started this kind of comparison thing when really what we find, not only here but throughout the Scriptures, is that the Lord is the one right there to go, I've walked this road. I've felt that temptation that you're struggling with. I know what that feels like. And so he's not put off by our mistakes. He's not put off by our temptation, by, by our sin, that he's able to go, I understand. I sympathize. That he has faced these things. He has gone down this road in order to understand us and relate with us and that we might relate with him. So when we go through the valleys, man, we need to come back. Remember that how we get through them is standing on the word of God. Whatever the enemy is going to come at us with, we just need to keep holding on to the word of God. Walking through that valley with Jesus himself, trusting in his love and in his word and trusting in his perfect timing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you can be trusted. That so often we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand the things that are ahead of us, the trials we're facing, the, an enemy attacking us, but you do. And the fact that you do, we can simply just trust in who you are. We can stand on your word and we can stand in your love and, and draw near to you in those times that we are hurting. Thank you that you have already walked this road, that you have faced things harder, more difficult than we ever will. And that, Lord, you know how to get us through. And we just uh, pray that you would use us this week. Go before us. Give us opportunity to share your love with the people around us and to encourage others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.